was 27, happily engaged to the man I loved. I had a stable government job and was about to purchase a house when I found out I was pregnant with my first child. Everything I had learned in my life pointed to the fact that I should be happy, but I wasn't. I was scared. I didn't plan for this. I'd never held a baby in my life, and my partner and I had never discussed whether we wanted children. I texted Bryant, my partner, that I was pregnant. He was out fishing with a friend. He replied in disbelief, but with overwhelming happiness. Then the guilt overcame me like a tidal wave. He was happy. Why wasn't I happy? I didn't want this baby. I wasn't sure if I would keep this baby. I was considering an abortion. Maybe you've never heard those words leave someone's mouth before, but it's my truth and I'm not afraid to tell it. Nowadays, people ask me how I feel knowing that my daughters might one day read these words or listen to these words, that they might know that at some stage or another, I was considering an abortion, that they may not have come into being. And the answer is, I hope they do. But more so, I hope I get the chance to tell them myself before then. I hope that when they grow up, they also live in a world where they have this choice available to them. I hope they have full bodily autonomy and I will proudly tell them my story and ultimately their story. So back to me being pregnant for the first time. Society tells you that when you get to a certain point in your life that the next natural step and indeed the expected next step is to have a baby. After all, I was a young white woman with a stable job and a stable relationship. It's almost looked down upon to not take that next step and procreate. Except I had grown up with the narrative that I shouldn't settle down and have children too young. My mother had three kids and was married and separated by the time she was 24. I didn't want to put a halt to my life's plans by having children too young. I actually didn't know if I even wanted children at all. I cried for weeks. I refused to talk about it with Brian. He didn't know where my head was at. Nobody really knew where my head was at, not even me. He didn't know whether he could be happy and whether we were keeping this baby or not. He said he would support me in whatever I chose, and I believed him. But I also believed that maybe this decision was not something a relationship could survive. Could I go against his wants and terminate the pregnancy and still have a healthy, happy relationship? Would terminating the pregnancy affect my chances of having children later on in life? Would he resent me, even subconsciously? Would it be our undoing? I feared that it would, and he meant more to me than my hesitation to have children. So one day I told him, we're keeping it. He was thrilled. I was still unsure. We were keeping it. I would keep my word, but I hadn't fully accepted it. I searched high and low for something or someone to relate to. I googled, I'm pregnant, now what? And was met with pages upon pages of, how exciting, congratulations, what an amazing time in your life. But that's not how I felt. Nothing I found accurately represented what I was feeling inside. I felt sad, I felt overwhelmed, and I felt like my life was now out of my control, that I was a victim to my circumstances. I wanted someone to tell me that it was okay to not be happy, that what I was feeling was human, that it was okay. The number of interactions I had with people who knew I was pregnant is directly related to the amount of guilt I felt about not being able to embrace the pregnancy. Each time I told someone I was pregnant, they would say how happy they were for me and congratulate me. Then upon seeing my face and reading my body language, some would ask, well, this is a good thing, right? Or you are happy, right? Could I say no? Because that's what I felt. I felt it to my bones. 
but I didn't. I just smile and nod. Yep, this is a good thing. Yep, I'm just following the trajectory of a young white woman in Australia, ticking boxes and filling in the little box society had filled for me. And in truth, that is how I felt, trapped in a box. Once I began to show that I was visibly pregnant is when the real mental battle began. I completely lost my identity to the being growing inside me. People stopped asking how I was and started asking how the baby was. I was no longer viewed as sexy, but cute and maternal. Suddenly I couldn't eat certain things or say certain things or do certain things. My life had already changed and the baby wasn't even here yet. Suddenly my body was public property. People felt entitled to stare at my belly and some to even touch it. My body was not my own anymore and I started to resent my situation even more. I was already struggling to come to terms with what was happening to me, but now almost every person I met felt like they had a claim to a part of me. I hid away. I can count on one hand the number of photographs I have of me pregnant with my first child. I didn't want to remember this time in my life. I just wanted it to be over. I wanted my body back. I wanted my life back. Irrespective of all this, I never thought that I would have trouble postpartum. It was a rough journey for me while I was pregnant. I mean, physically my pregnancy was fine, I'm pretty blessed in that department, but mentally, it was hard. But I was never scared I would struggle with depression post-birth. I'm not sure my family felt the same. I think Brian in particular was hyper aware of this. As it turns out, I took to parenting and motherhood like a duck to water. My birth with this baby was a textbook hospital birth. I went in at 40 plus 10 for a stretch and sweep and started having regular contractions that night. After 12 hours at home, we went into hospital and had 12 hours of labour there. After two hours of pushing, an unknown midwife entered the room, snapped on some gloves and said, if you don't get this baby out soon, I'm going to have to cut you. It was all the motivation I needed to push with all my might. My baby was out in the next two contractions. I have a photo of this moment, this little baby lying on my chest. I'm looking at the camera in bewilderment. I still didn't want this. I didn't even know what this was. I wasn't sure I loved her right away. I think that came with time. Regardless, we fit together like a puzzle and parenting and mothering her was a dream. We named her Ren Rose. At some stage in my postpartum period, we decided that more kids would be on the table for us. What a complete turnaround. I wanted another baby. I really did. This was such a foreign feeling to me, being able to fully embrace that need and not be ashamed of it. Bright and I agreed that we would try for a second baby when Ren was two. A good friend of mine was ready to try for a baby at the same time. We decided to track our cycles together, and it just so happens that our cycles were in sync. She ovulated when I ovulated, and we took pregnancy tests on the same day, and were both ecstatic that they were positive. Time passed, and we found out we were due on the same day, but that joy was short-lived for me, as at seven weeks I experienced heavy bleeding. My fears were soon downplayed by every medical professional I saw. I was seeking advice, answers, good news, or even bad news. I just wanted something definitive. I wanted an answer. But such is the world of pregnancy and childbirth. Not everything goes to plan, and despite modern technology, there are still questions that can't be answered, and sometimes little can be done to save a pregnancy that is failing. Bryant was away for work for a few months when the bleeding began. He offered to come home, but I declined. I felt uncomfortable being vulnerable in front of him. I think in some ways we had grown apart over the two years since Ren had came. 
priorities had shifted and our relationship was starting to show cracks. We needed to work on it, but we were time poor and if I'm honest, probably a little bit resentful. Brian had been deployed with the Defence Force twice in our relationship. Thankfully, both before we had Ren, but they were fraught with loss and fear nonetheless. On his first tour of duty, he was involved in an incident in which we lost a good friend. The naivety I had sustained in regards to his job came shattering down around me. This was real. He could die over there. People were dying over there. I was scared, but I couldn't tell him that. He had a job to do and I was fearful of being any sort of distraction to him. So I withdrew and I learned to hide my vulnerabilities from him. Still to this day, this ability has not really returned to me. I have to force myself to be transparent with my feelings. It wasn't until the story I am about to tell that I realised this myself. My friend and I would share milestones, talking every day. Her pregnancy, my pregnancy, they felt one and the same, until they weren't. Our paths started to diverge. I continued to bleed. I was working full-time and solo parenting between 15 and 17 weeks. I had been in and out of emergency and early pregnancy assessment units at two separate hospitals, more than I can remember. I ended up in Liverpool Hospital on bed rest and at 19 weeks my waters broke and the reality of the possible loss of my baby started to sink in. Bryant was still away, so my mum moved into our house to care for Ren while I was on bed rest in hospital. I worked from my hospital bed every day. It kept me busy because I could think of nothing worse than to sit on that hospital bed staring at the walls contemplating the loss of our second child. I never stopped bleeding. I was passing blood clots the size of dinner plates. The hospital told me that once my bleeding stopped, I could go home. Sweet. I needed to not bleed for 24 hours and I could go home to Red. It never happened. I bled all day, all night, every day and every night. I remember feeling as though I needed to prove how bad my situation was to the midwives to get them to pay attention. I would tell them I was bleeding a lot. They would come in and say things like, oh, that's not much at all. And I would think, well, fuck you. I'd rather not be bleeding at all. I felt like my worries weren't being validated, that they were glossing over the very scary reality that I was facing. Part of me wanted to bleed more to get them to pay attention to me. Then my waters broke and everything changed. I could see the pity in everyone's eyes, but no one was filling me in. I didn't know what it meant. I had read that my waters could simply be leaking. Maybe the baby would be okay, but the look in everyone's eyes and the tone in their voices confirmed otherwise. I remember vividly, the midwife's coming to check the baby's heart rate, and once my waters broke, it got harder for them to do so. Each time they came to check the heart rate, my own heart would sink. Even with my eyes tightly shut, I could see and feel the tension in the midwives as they struggled to find the heartbeat, but tried not to alert me to the fact that something might be wrong. I felt like I needed to comfort them, to tell them that it was okay, that I knew things weren't right. I was begging them for an ultrasound. They said they would do one the next day, but I didn't want to wait that long, so I begged and begged. They conceded, but said it would need to be quick because the sonographer was about to go on lunch. God forbid I inconvenience someone by impeding on their lunch break by looking for some answers on whether I was losing my baby or not. I got my ultrasound. I was alone at this ultrasound. (sighs) 
There was no one there to hold my hand. Then the sonographer, who so kindly put his lunch break aside for me, he put his hand on my arm and simply said, I'm sorry. I thought, sorry for what? He said it as though there was only one outcome, but no one had even told me my options. I was in limbo. However, it was the most definitive answer I had been given my entire pregnancy, which just wasn't the answer I was searching for. I swallowed the desire to scream and calmly asked what he meant. He explained that a baby needs amniotic fluid for lung development and that a baby's lungs don't start developing until after 20 weeks. My baby was 19 weeks gestation. Despite this, babies can survive in utero with no amniotic fluid, but more often than not, the mother will go into spontaneous labour soon after her membranes have ruptured. Babies who survive have countless months of neonatal care ahead of them and the possibility of needing oxygen support for the remainder of their lives, not to mention the risk of cerebral palsy and countless other issues. Thus, a choice was handed to us. Wait and try to make it to 24 weeks to see if Bub could survive or choose to induce labour and end our baby's life. And those were our choices. I wish that this choice could be made for me, for us. I hoped it would be taken out of our hands so we didn't have to make the decision to end our child's life. I waited outside the sonographer's room Usually a midwife would wait for me and walk me back to my room. This time she quickly walked off ahead of me and left me behind. I felt that she didn't know what to say to me, so she just avoided me altogether. So I walked slowly and sadly back to my room. I walked in to see my ultrasound printouts on the wall and I completely broke down. This is the first time I had cried the whole time. Reality came crashing down. In that moment, I felt like what I was receiving was karma. Karma for not completely surrendering to and embracing my pregnancies. But in that moment, I would have taken it all back. I didn't know what to do. I didn't call or text Bryant first like you'd expect maybe I should have. I called my mum. No answer. So I called my auntie and through loud, heaving sobs, explained to her what was going on. I'm not even sure that she knew I was in hospital. <laughs> what do you say to someone in that situation? I told her that I didn't want to make the choice that now lay ahead of me, that I wished it could be made for me. She told me that she wished that too that she would be hoping that the universe would take that choice out of my hands, that maybe I would wake up and it would be done. And then I thought, here we are, both wishing that my baby would die. So I didn't have to make the choice. But part of me knew it was never going to be that easy. My mum called me back 
Somehow I got the words out and she came straight over. We cried. She asked if I had told Bryant yet. I hadn't. I couldn't. I didn't want to. But I did. Just like how I had told Bryant that I was pregnant with our first child, I texted him. <laughs> and he called me straight away. I didn't want to talk. I didn't want to voice it out loud. I didn't want him to hear how upset I was. I was still trying to be the strong one, holding a legacy of not wanting to be vulnerable in front of him. So we texted. He offered to come home. I said no. <laughs> I didn't want to inconvenience him. But I think part of me wanted him to make that call. I didn't resent that he hadn't been there while I spent weeks on end on bed rest. There was nothing he could do anyway. But I wanted him to be the one now to decide if it was time for him to come home. He said he was coming and he drove right through, 12 hours to get back to me in Sydney. During this time, I backflipped between wanting to keep the pregnancy and see what would come of it to deciding to terminate. My absolute worst fear during this time was that I would make the choice to continue with the pregnancy, steal myself for what may come and then deliver the baby only to have he or she suffer and pass away after birth. I spent hours at night researching the risks for continuing with the pregnancy and trying to imagine what our life might look like afterwards if Bub did survive. Would I be burdening our family and sacrificing our future if Bub survived and had chronic health issues leading into the future? Could I mentally cope with that? Did I want to cope with that? I say want because this is something that is very important to me. To have the ability to choose. I wanted complete autonomy over my body. Some women do not get that choice and I'll be forever grateful that I was able to choose for myself, for my husband and for our family. I talked it over with mum. I knew I could have healthy pregnancies resulting in healthy babies. I knew it was possible and I so badly wanted that. I wanted a baby. I wanted this baby, but I wanted this baby to be healthy, and as much as it hurt to think it, I did not want to put our family through the trials and tribulations I could see laying ahead for us if we decided to continue with the pregnancy. So we made our choice as a family. Making that choice destroyed me. As much as I reasoned with myself and knew within myself that we were making the right choice for our family, it tore me apart. No mother should have to make that choice, though to have the choice was a blessing and a curse. When being induced, the doctor advised that I was already one centimetres dilated, and it looked like I would have been going into spontaneous labour in the coming days. A small consolation for my now broken soul. As I lay there contracting, I logged into my laptop and continued working. My mum was sitting in the corner, continuing to knit a little baby blanket, now to be gifted to my soon-to-be dead baby. The midwife told me I would only have to dilate to three centimetres. It had never occurred to me that I wouldn't need to fully dilate. My heart sank when she told me. I laboured and birthed a little boy. He looked just like his dad, even at 20 weeks. Our little Tommy. The hospital advised that even if we didn't want to take them with us, that they would photograph Tommy and keep the photos on file, so that if we ever wanted to see him, we could come back and ask for them. He was born still. He didn't survive the birth. 
The midwives measured him, dressed him, and gave us time to hold and spend time with him. Then they sent us home with him in a cardboard box. They told me that he was a boy. I hadn't thought to check when he was born. I was running on autopilot. I knew he was a boy. I had been saying all throughout my pregnancy that only a boy would cause me this much trouble during pregnancy. The midwife said, you were right, he's a boy. You knew all along. My grief intensified in that moment. Somehow knowing that he was a boy made it worse. As if, if it were a girl, I could say to myself, well, you've already got a girl. Or maybe I thought that that's what people would say or think. Another small consolation. Birthing your baby before 20 weeks gestation allows you to legally take your baby with you. After 20 weeks, you have to leave your baby at the hospital in the arms of strangers. When we were discharged, I carried our boy to the car and placed him on the back seat for the drive to my mum's house where we planned to bury him. This detail has plagued me ever since. On his journey to his final destination to be returned to the earth, he was riding on our back seat in a cardboard box. Why didn't I hold him? Why didn't I cradle that box and pour every bit of love and energy I could muster into it while I could? No amount of reasoning will heal that wound for me. I will forever feel guilt for not doing all that I could in that moment, in his last moments. We buried our little man under a special tree in my mum's backyard. Then we headed home to pick up the pieces of our now shattered lives. I watched my husband pick up his first son's lifeless body and place him ever so gently into the hole he had dug in the earth. I still hadn't cried. Even through labour and upon seeing his little body fall to the ground, not one tear. But seeing Brian place Tommy in the ground shook me. Not because I was sad for me. I was sad for him. What had I done? What had my body done? It had failed us. And now my husband would never again be able to hold his son. For some reason that broke me. I felt like it was worse because Tommy was a boy. Like the pain would be less if it were a girl. It's so fucked up. It goes without saying that the next few months were fucking shit. <laughs> they were really hard. After the loss of a baby, the world is full of firsts you aren't willing to face. Last time I did this, or last time I went there, or last time I saw this person, I was pregnant, and now I am not. Will they mention it? Will they ask? Do I want them to? The silence surrounding our grief was stifling. I was thrown into a world I was unfamiliar with, usually an open book. I struggled to find my feet in this new world. Do I mention his name? Do I pretend it didn't happen? Then I read an article by Alice Jolly on the loss of her daughter, where she said, if we avoid the pain of grief, then we also miss out on its gifts. And yes, there are gifts. We suffer losses so that we more fully know the value of what is left behind. And having suffered bereavement, we do not turn away from others who are bereaved. Grief is work, and all work becomes easier if it is shared between many hands, and there is no community so welded together as the community of grief shared.
Reading this solidified in me that I had a role to play in this new world of mine. I refused to hide behind the stigma and spoke my soul to anyone who would listen. People would know about our loss. People would know our boy's name and the universe would know that he had lived. When returning to normal life, I found that not many people could grasp the devastation that this loss had brought upon our lives. To others, it was merely an uncomfortable situation. I've been there before. I've had people in my life who have experienced the unexpected loss of a child. And I felt sorry and sad for a moment, but then put the thought away as it was uncomfortable for me to remain in that space. We are urged to move on as quickly as we can, and we urge the grieving to move on swiftly too. We aren't given proper time to grieve, even on an excellent benefit scheme in a federal government job. We are gifted only three days bereavement leave for the loss of an immediate family member. Three days. Three days to repair the hole left in your life when you've lost someone you've known your entire life. I began to see that our society is and was in denial about death. Being in denial may be nice for some, comfortable gray area, ignorance is bliss and all that. But what about the people who don't get the choice? What about the women who are thrown into that space and are kept there against their will? How horrible that there is an entire segment of our community who are ushered into darkness and silence when they are one of the many people who need our support and light most. When I found myself in that space, I decided that while I may be held there against my will, I would certainly not concede to remaining silent on it. When speaking the raw, honest truth about our loss, I found the universe returned healing to me in equal parts. Hearing from other women who had helped in some way by reading my own words gave me strength to get up the next day. I know not everyone is comfortable speaking about loss, and in particular about pregnancy and infant loss, but it is one of those dirty jobs that needs to be done. We contribute to the stigma of loss by remaining silent on the issue. It is our duty to help people affected by loss. I found that many people did not know what to say. They were concerned about upsetting me, but I was upset anyway. I was in a constant state of sadness day in, day out. I would rather have had people ask me how I was coping and risk me shedding a tear in their presence than to shed those same tears on my own in the darkness of my bedroom. I came to learn that my grief was not unproductive. I was not merely sad and holding on to that sadness. I was in pain and I knew that soon these wounds would heal. So I honored that pain by giving myself time to dive in and experience it. A few weeks after Tommy's birth and death, we decided to take a family holiday to Tasmania. My sister and her family were going to be there too, and we would meet up when our schedules allowed. It was like a breath of fresh air. Being away from prying eyes and going somewhere I had never been when I was pregnant released so much stress for me. Now I was escaping, having to do all those post-death first. But that was also short-lived. We were driving somewhere in Tasmania when I got a message from my friend who had fallen pregnant at the same time as me. Our once shared journey had parted ways when my baby died and hers kept growing inside of her. She wanted to tell me that they had found out the gender of their baby. She wanted me to know before she announced it to others. She told me she was having a boy.
this more than anything else in my journey destroyed me. I had been hoping they would have a girl so I wouldn't have to be constantly reminded of the little boy I had lost. But now I'm so grateful. Her little boy is a constant reminder that what I went through was real. I felt like a little part of my boy lives on in him. A reminder of how tall my boy might be, what he might be doing developmentally if he had have lived. A sign that he had lived, that he was here. A few days later, we got a message from my sister. She said she had been keeping something from me. She was pregnant, but she didn't know how to tell me. She had been pregnant was when I was in hospital, birthing our now dead baby boy. But now something was wrong. She was bleeding and was in hospital in Hobart having tests done. She knew she was losing her baby. <laughs> I just... I just fucking couldn't. I'm not sure what went through my mind right then. Disbelief. But I just knew we had to be there. I told Bryant we were packing our bags and we drove back to Hobart to be by her side. I offered to go with her to the early pregnancy assessment unit, a place I was all too familiar with. I didn't think about how it would make me feel and whether I would be able to cope with visiting a place like this so early in my grief. It was a non-negotiable for me. I would be there. No one in my family would ever be alone at a time like this again. I could do that. I could do that. At whatever cost. I went with her to the hospital when I sat with her as she was delivered the news that her ectopic pregnancy would need to be dissolved. <sighs> It was tough, but I don't regret being there. If anything, I felt like it was my responsibility to be there. She had hidden her pregnancy from me for fear of upsetting me. If that wasn't the case, maybe I could have been more of a support to her in the lead up to this day. I felt like I needed to make up for that. A month after Tommy's death, I returned to full-time work. I was only 15 weeks pregnant when I left work and I'd only told my boss that I was pregnant. So returning to work was really hard. People asked how my holiday was. They wondered where I was. People who knew what had happened avoided the question. They didn't know what to say and I didn't know if I wanted to talk about it. Then three months after we lost Tommy, we decided to try again. Truly, the only thing I thought could make me happy would be falling pregnant again. Thankfully, it didn't take long. We tried and it happened. If only it were that easy to keep a baby safe. I knew I wanted to do things differently this time around. We were relocating interstate temporarily when I was due to give birth and the idea of searching for a suitable hospital and caretaker from another state was overwhelming, and planning to birth at home seemed easier. 
My experience with Tommy went completely off plan. So I wanted to control and keep this birth as close to my heart as possible. I wanted to take hold of every facet of this birth. I broached the topic with hubby and at first he reacted as expected, hesitant, worried, wanting so bad to be supportive, but sporting obvious reservations. I knew it was coming from a good place, from not wanting to risk it and wanting me to be somewhere safe. But after meeting with a few home birth experts and speaking with others, we decided it was the right path for us. I was being treated with kid gloves by the medical professionals who had seen me through our loss with Tommy and part of me wanted to leave that behind. I considered not telling my new midwives about our loss for fear that I would be labelled high risk and have all choice torn from me again. But to my surprise, the universe decided to do me a solid and send me a midwife and direct from the angels above. I could not have wished for a better fit. My pregnancy was smooth and worry-free. I managed to go forward into this pregnancy, leaving most of the anxiousness from my loss with Tommy behind. I started to believe in myself as a resilient and strong woman. My day arrived. My belly babe and I were 40 weeks and 5 days into our relationship, and it was time to finally meet. I had been having mild contractions all day whilst out shopping with my mum, and it took until 8pm that night for me to decide progress was solid enough for me to call my midwife on her day off. <laughs> she made me promise to, and I really didn't want to do it without her. So call her on her day off I did, and come to my house on her day off she did. Hubby got to work setting up the birth pool, laying down tarps, checking on me intermittently while I snapchatted to friends, as you do, and bounced away on the birth pool. My midwife, her colleague and a student midwife arrived and assumed their positions at the dining room table with my mum, where they proceeded to chat and drink tea for the rest of the night. Ren was sleeping soundly in her room just one hallway over. Not one of them laid a hand on me until after our babe was born. No cervix checks, no strangers coming in and out of the room, flicking on lights and leaving doors open, just tea and conversation and gentle words of encouragement. What a contrast this was to my first two birth experiences. It was beautiful. I was left to my own devices, but knew that I had people there ready to support me if I should need it. With Ren's birth, I spent two hours being told when to push and which position to lie in to deliver her. I wanted to experience the flip side of that this time around. I wanted to feel safe and supported and have my body do its thing and roll with the punches of labour, undisturbed, and that is just what we did. I did not have to physically push during labour at all. I submitted myself to the process entirely and used my breaks between contractions to brace myself for the next. Clover was born after a two-hour active labour. She was born into the birth pool, with my hands guiding her to the surface. It was the most empowering experience of my life. For me, falling pregnant again after the loss of Tommy provided me with unfounded healing and progress in my journey of grief. I was so happy. I felt like things were back on track. And then came the guilt, because I felt that I was unintentionally trying to fix our loss, trying to replace a baby we couldn't have. This was a difficult time for me. One thing I really struggled with was the sex of our new baby. I chose not to find out the sex for fear that I would be disappointed. We had just lost our first boy, and with the possibility of this being our last baby, I was worried that I would be disappointed if I found out it was a girl. So I declined to know until I had no choice. 
Fast forward 20 weeks and I've just given birth in a beautiful, calm, peaceful and healing home birth. We are 15 minutes into this new baby's beautiful earthside life and we haven't even thought to check the sex. It didn't matter. I didn't care. We had a baby, but we checked. A girl. I'd be lying if I said that I was not hoping for a boy. After losing our boy just under a year before, of course a part of me wanted that for our family. However, I believe Clover came to me for a reason. She is who she is. She is a baby, and now a toddler, in her own right. She is not a replacement baby to band-aid over the loss of our boy, and I feel that healed me immensely. I did have fears that I would feel guilt for bringing a new babe into this world when I should have been nursing an almost one-year-old boy, but it didn't feel that way. She wasn't a consolation prize. She was, and is, our third child. But when announcing her birth and sex, I could feel others' disappointment that we hadn't gotten the boy we were after, and that makes me so incredibly sad, both for our family and for others going through similar experiences. No baby, not boy or girl, could heal the trauma left by the loss of our boy Tommy. Delivering a healthy baby boy would have been amazing, but no more amazing than delivering a healthy baby girl. It would not have made up for the fact that we were still missing a baby who should be a living, breathing member of our family. We get so caught up in making things right in our lives, and sometimes it's just not possible. People die. Babies die. Pregnancies fail and nothing can undo that pain and make it right. And on some level, that's okay. Because I would rather grieve for the loss of my only boy lifetimes over than to never have known what it was like to hold that child inside of me at all. After Clover's birth, I had been thrust deeply into the world of birth. I picked up my camera again after years of it sitting collecting dust and I offered to photograph my sister's birth with her third pregnancy and second child. She was hesitant, but she agreed and I have not looked back since. Nowadays, you can find me advocating for birth rights as human rights, sharing knowledge on birth choices and birth rights and documenting births for a living. My entire experience and narrative has led me to this moment, a moment where I want to open up the dialogue on experiences like this, the big and the hard, the taboo and the silenced. Our maternal healthcare system is failing many women and having been victim to some of these failures and knowing that many women have stories to tell, but nowhere safe to tell them, this is where my life has led me. I aim to create this safe space for women and families to talk about the big stuff and lift the veil on the unspoken. Thank you so much for listening. I'm Sarah Widenyana, and this is The Birth Debrief.